Brothers and sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 28. The title of the sermon, We Must Through Many Tribulations Enter the Kingdom of God. And I'll be reading from verse 8 of chapter 14 through to verse 28. Uh, Please listen very carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So take a look there at the map in your sermon notes and you'll see that we're looking at uh, Lystra and Derby there on the map today but I also want you to note the proximity there on the map between Derby and Tarsus and bear in mind there's a mountain range there between Derby and Tarsus called the Taurus Mountains uh, and we'll be talking about that at some point during the sermon I think the geography is helpful uh, these are real places real people real historical events So the key verse for this section that we're looking at today, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And this is the title of today's sermon. 
May the Lord bless each one of us to have this truth set permanently in our minds by His Spirit today. And may we learn from today's sermon how to prepare ourselves to respond properly when, not if, when we are hated and treated cruelly because of His name. If you are in Christ and you identify with Him and you walk according to His ways, you speak His gospel and you obey His ways, you will be hated because of His name. So what is your perspective on tribulations and persecutions? That's a big question for today's text. Do you think persecutions and tribulations should be avoided at all costs? Do you think they can be avoided and still be faithful? What do you consider to be a godly response to tribulations and persecutions? Are you going to call down fire from heaven upon them? What kind of persecutions and tribulations do we face in our culture today? How are you tempted to abandon the Lord? What are the temptations in life that tempt you to abandon the Lord? And don't think that this abandonment is going to be all at once overnight. What tempts you to soften up, tone down, back off from full obedience to the Lord, tone down, back off from the full presentation of the gospel. Really the question is, whose countenance most holds the grip upon your soul? Listen to the commentary. Those that are in the faith are concerned to continue in the faith. Notwithstanding all the temptations they may be under to desert it from the smiles or the frowns of this world. And it is requisite that they should often be exhorted to do so those that are continually surrounded with temptations to apostasy have need to be continually attended with pressing exhortations to perseverance. We need to have our souls strengthened, as we will see in the text today. We need to grow in faith as we are going through this world surrounded by these constant smiles or frowns of this world that hates Jesus. And when we talk about this world, it's not just institutions, it's not just what you hear on the news. These are people in your life, maybe even family members in your life, who will frown upon your faithfulness to Christ, who will pull back from you because of your faithfulness to Christ. So we, we need to have this message before us. In today's sermon, we're going to do a quick review of Paul's tribulations and acts so far so we can see what he's been through. We're going to see what Jesus says about tribulations and troubles and persecutions for his name's sake. And that's going to be kind of our guiding understanding of how to think about it and how to respond to it and understand why it happens. Next, we're going to see the murderous Jews from Pisidian, Antioch, and Iconium, and that Paul's left for dead in verse 19, and talk about that. But then the disciples from Lystra gather around Paul, and he rises up, and he goes back in. We'll see that in verse 28, and we'll talk about that. We'll see Paul and Barnabas preach and make disciples in Derby. They press on. And then we'll see Paul and Barnabas returning back through the cities where they had been so mistreated. Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch. And then they make way to head home to Antioch, still preaching along the way, we will see. 
And then back at Antioch, we'll see them updating and nurturing God's people. And it's worth noticing that Antioch is home. You know they're safe when they get to Antioch, don't you? You don't realize you know that. But now you know they're safe. There's no persecution mentioned in Antioch. Now, not to say it didn't happen, but some sort of reception and foothold was in place there in the Antioch church. And then we'll consider together how to think about tribulations, persecutions, troubles for Christ's name and prepare ourselves by His grace to go through these things in a way that's pleasing to Him. So in Damascus, we see, let's look at uh, Saul slash Paul's life so far in Acts. He escapes from Jews planning to kill him. So as we mentioned back then, this is the theme of Paul's life. He preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. So Saul slash Paul, this man, as a Christian, he has known troubles, tribulations, persecutions from the start, his life being threatened. And then next, uh, he's in Jerusalem, and he escapes another Jewish plot to kill him. The text says in chapter 9, so he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. That's with the apostles and elders there. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. So at this point in time, Saul has already, in his first two listed efforts in evangelism, has his life threatened. So they begin their first missionary journey. You know, they're sent out by prayer and fasting there from the church at Antioch, and they've sailed to Cyprus. And in verse 13, we see resistance from a false prophet, sorcerer. Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So another kind of trouble that Christians face is this false teaching, these false prophets from within the church, apparently within the church, who stand against them and resist the gospel. They move on to Asia Minor. They sail from Cyprus and they get to Perga. And another tribulation they face in, that Paul faces, uh, and he's Paul at this point, verse 13 of chapter 13, is that John Mark deserts them. He loses a key member of his team. When Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. <clears throat> now we'll see today on their way back, they preach at Perga. Who knows why they didn't preach then? Maybe they did, but there's no mention of the preaching there at Perga this first time through. But we do see that Perga was a sad spot for Paul as they came to Asia Minor. This is a tribulation when team members abandoned the work. Next, at Antioch in Pisidia, there's opposition, persecution, and expulsion by envious Jews. He continues to face the same threat. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women, and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. 
<clears throat> he is facing over and over again the same kind of rejection from the Jews. Some believe, though. In Iconium, next, going from there after they are expelled, there's more opposition and an attempted stoning from Jews and Gentiles. The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. This is at Iconium. But the multitudes of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia and to the surrounding region. Do you wonder what it is that keeps Paul going? In Lystra we saw last week this idolatrous response to the gospel where they want to enthrone him as Hermes come to earth along with Barnabas as Zeus. When the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. This again is a form of trouble, a form of tribulation. You wouldn't necessarily call it persecution, but they are very sad and grieved over what this response reveals there in Lystra. So Jesus, he warned his disciples that they would, they would face persecution and tribulation during that time frame. And in Matthew 13, we see that tribulation and persecution will reveal the true nature of your faith. You know, why does God take us through these things? Does he, did He not know? Did God not know what Abraham would do when He told him to take His son up on the top of the mountain? Of course, God knew, but Abraham didn't know. Abraham found out along the way about his own faith. And, and you do too. You don't know yourself as well as God does. None of us do. This is what Jesus said, but he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So these are individuals who look like believers, but they're not. There's a, an appearance of life in them. But when persecution comes, when they are attacked, whether it's their reputation or their livelihood or their well-being or their family, they stumble. And this is what Paul, one of the things Paul has to be so concerned about with why he went back through these three cities. He knew what he had faced. He knew what they were going to face. They needed to be strengthened. He didn't want all of these churches to end up like this, stumbling. Next. Jesus tells his disciples that persecution is coming. He makes sure that they know that this is coming. So they know that they're going to be tested and the nature and the quality of their faith is going to be revealed through this testing. And he tells them it is coming upon them. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. This is in Luke 21 when Jesus is answering the question, about when the temple will be destroyed and how they will know that it's about to be destroyed. And part of that is Jesus telling them that they are going to persecute you. And this is his disciples. He's telling them that at that time. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my namesake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Haven't we already seen that in the book of Acts? 
Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost by your patience. Possess your souls. So he's telling them, this is going to occur. And it's going to be okay. I'm going to help you through this. You don't even have to think about it ahead of time. I'm going to tell you what to say, what needs to be said. And that he will see them through it. He will see them through the persecution. And it won't just be from the rulers and the Jews. It will also be even from their own family members. uh, Betraying them. Turning them over. And some of them will be killed, he tells them. And it's worth pausing here and emphasizing that the um, amount, the magnitude of persecution that individuals experience in a particular culture is going to be dependent upon how faithful to Christ they are and how faithful to Christ the culture is. So in a really God-hating culture, and you are really loving God in that culture, there's going to be a higher persecution for you and for your family and for Christians in that culture. And we see this even on display in today's text with there being very little persecution mentioned in Antioch. Something was different about Antioch. And so, yes, persecution is coming for every Christian, but we need to also see that that persecution will increase or decrease based upon the faithfulness of the surrounding culture or the unfaithfulness of the surrounding culture. Next, in Matthew 5, in two places, we see how we are supposed to think and respond. How we're supposed to think about it and how we're supposed to respond to it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So not only do we need to know that it's coming ahead of time, but we also need to know that we are blessed when it happens, and we need to rejoice when it happens. And the response that we can have in faith when we are mistreated because of identifying with Christ is that we can be happy and we can rejoice and we can be exceedingly glad and we can remember these words, for great is your reward in heaven. So this is our mindset. So Paul, he did not run away from persecution, from tribulation. He did what God called him to do and we have to think that he was probably able to rejoice and be glad in the midst of it, seeing the reward that was his. Now, Matthew, now I will say this, uh, there's a beautiful chiastic structure to the Sermon on the Mount, and the center point of that chiasm is this, how to respond to persecution. So Jesus is preparing his disciples for a lot of things, but the focus of the Sermon on the Mount is how to deal with persecution. And in the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount, we see that the Beatitudes are just the outline for everything that comes in the remainder. So then in Matthew 5, 43 and 48, Jesus comes back around and teaches them about persecution. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, here we go, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father 
in heaven. Now this is the exact opposite of how our flesh wants to respond to these things. And, and every one of us will, will rationalize as hard as we can on the inside not to act this way. We'll go to every other scripture we can find not to, not to do this. But why? Jesus tells us. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So this idea of being complete as a Christian, that's the idea of perfect. It doesn't mean sinless. It means reaching that full maturity is when you get to this spot here. And you understand persecution and reviling and mistreatment And by God's grace, His face and His countenance is the most important countenance to you. And you are able to have His countenance towards those who discountenance you. Next, we see in John 15, the root cause of all of this is consistently identifying with Christ and the Father makes this fallen world hate us. The devil is enraged at the people of God, enraged at God, enraged at all that God loves. And when we, and the devil, of course, in the world system, are all in this big category called the world, they hate us because we are in Christ, because we love Him, and because we walk in His ways. This is why we see over and over in Psalm 119, don't you, it ever strike you? Over and over again, they're talking about My enemies come against me. Please help me stay in your word. I'm being afflicted by my enemies and adversaries. Please don't let me turn away from your word. So here's what Jesus says. And really, it's will you identify with Christ fully in your life? If the world hates you, Jesus speaking, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore... The world hates you. So let's let's be hated only because we identify with Christ. You don't get to just be a jerk and then say, oh, well, they hate me because of Christ. That doesn't work. Jesus going on, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. We can't mature so much to get beyond what Jesus went through. We want to be like our master, and in that we will be persecuted and hated by this world. Jesus said, going on, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. So we will bring on the hatred, the natural hatred. I mean, you, you know it in your own flesh. right? You want to, what, what hatred are we talking about? You know that hatred in your own flesh. Your hatred for God's law, for God's ways. When Paul said, there's no good thing in my flesh. You've tasted of this rebellion and this hatred towards God. Now, in God's kindness, he's saved you from your sins. And he's crucifying that old man who hates him. And you're growing up in Christ and following him. But think about unrestrained 
flesh banded together. Led astray through the deceptions of the devil. Banding together with all the resources of this earth. This world hates Jesus and His Father. And if we identify with Christ, we will also be hated as well. So let that be the grid, the background through which you're seeing Paul's tribulation take place. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. And remember, what is Paul's, where's Paul's countenance? Like, I think he's remembering Jesus' face. He's remembering he used to do all these same things to Christians. And he's going through this with the risen Christ and his smile and his favor before him. Note the magnitude of hatred for Paul and the gospel message. Think of the length of travel that they went through. What a heart of malice you must have to travel this far. The commentary says, enemies from Iconium at first sight make a little more sense than those from Antioch. Pisidian Antioch was more than 100 miles from Lystra. That's four or five days travel, but Iconium was only about 20 miles. So some of these people who are coming against Paul have traveled 100 miles to do so. And this is on the Roman road that we discussed, about 15 to 20 miles per day that they would have traveled. Maybe they were on horseback. We don't know. But in any case, this shows their devotion. They were religious zealots like Paul. He had traveled a long way as well, didn't he, when he came all the way to Damascus to try to bring in Christians and persecute them. Note that they work to persuade the multitudes. Again, they're stirring up, they're poisoning minds. And in this, they bring the people to stone Paul. Now, this was a punishment for blasphemers. It's another example that these Jews are really religious zealots. They believe they were doing the Lord's will. And they dragged him out of the city. They thought he was dead. So they must have hit him with a lot of rocks, or at least one big one in the head or something. Because they thought he was dead. They wanted him not only out of their city, they wanted him off this world. And they didn't bury him. They didn't treat his body with respect. They dragged a body they thought was dead. That's not... Think of the ill treatment that Paul is receiving here. Disrespecting his corpse. We've seen those videos, haven't we? When uh, soldiers are dragged around by other armies that hate them. This is the worst form of disrespect. So, Paul is experiencing persecution. He's experiencing tribulation significantly. Now, consider the irony, though. These people had just prior tried to enthrone Paul and worship him as Hermes. The same people. But quickly now, they assent to killing him. And they help, apparently. Commentary says, So strong is the bias of the corrupt and carnal heart to that which is evil as it is with great difficulty that men are restrained from evil on one side, so it is with great ease that they are persuaded to do evil on the other side. See how fickle and mutable the minds of carnal, worldly people are, that they do not know and consider things. Those that but the other day would have treated the apostles as more than men now treat them as worse than brutes, as the worst of men, as the worst of malefactors. Popular breath turns like the wind, If Paul would have been Mercury, he might have been enthroned. Nay, he might have been enshrined. But if he will be a faithful minister of Christ, he shall be stoned and thrown out of the city. Thus, those who easily submit to strong delusions hate 
to receive the truth and love of it. Brothers and sisters, there's an important point of wisdom here as we are going through our lives. Only time will tell who this person is that you're dealing with. Only time will tell whether this person you're dealing with is a friend or not. See, Jesus knew the fickleness of the crowds. In John 2, we see the same idea. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So this should be a warning to each of us. Will you prove to be a true friend to those in your life throughout the course of your life? Or will you display this same kind of fickleness and casting about on the wind? True friends are few and far between, brothers and sisters. Be one if you'd like to have some. Next, disciples gathered around Paul. He rises up and he goes back into Lystra. So he's left there for dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and he went into the city. This is a beautiful scene. I want us to note the courage and the love of the brethren from Lystra. Note the fast-working action of the gospel in the hearts of new believers. So far, Luke had not yet mentioned any conversions in Lystra, but here we have disciples being mentioned. Likely, this would include at least some from Lystra who had believed Paul's message. These are some of them, at least, new believers, probably. Commentary says the disciples are citizens of Lystra, who've become followers of Jesus as a result of the missionary activity of Paul and Barnabas in the city. Since Luke consistently focused on the healing of the lame man and on the pagan translation of this event into local religious traditions, he had not yet reported conversions among the population. So this is a beautiful thing to see. I mean, this would be an eye-opening moment. These new believers wouldn't have to be persuaded that uh, through the... The tribulations and persecutions must come and that they would have to go through them to enter the kingdom of God. They, they saw it with their own eyes. And perhaps Timothy was a part of this group of disciples gathering around Paul. Recall the early phase of Paul's second missionary journey. This is from Acts 16. Then he came to Derby and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him. So who knows? Maybe Timothy saw this event. Maybe he was one of the ones standing around. We can, we can confidently speculate that at least he had heard about this event. Now, many commentaries wonder about a miracle being done here in this moment, that this is a miracle being described by Luke. Given that, he'd been, that he had been left for dead drug out, apparently not resisting being dragged as if he was dead. So he was either dead or he was very badly injured. So how could he have risen up under his own power so quickly? That's the question. Commentary says Luke's brief statement can be interpreted as a healing miracle. As the believers of Lystra stand in a circle around Paul, who was lying on the ground bleeding and perhaps unconscious, they certainly would have prayed for him. God answers their prayers in terms of granting the miraculous recovery of Paul. Or, the believers stood around Paul, waited for him to slowly recover his senses, and then helped him to get up, supporting the injured apostle as he walked back into the city. What we know for sure is that these disciples were faithful to love Paul and to associate with him who had just been stoned and left for dead. 
I want us to also note here Paul's courage and commitment to his mission. And we see it over and over and over again that God has gripped this man with this mission. And we've heard the story so many times and we know the outcome. But let's just pause for a minute and put ourselves in his shoes. They finally got him. All these threats to kill him, all the sneaking out, the baskets through the wall, going off to different cities and boats. They finally got him. Put yourself in his shoes. I mean, in your life, has that grace of God that you're so thankful for and the countenance of the Father faded at times enough to where maybe you would have just run away? Maybe if the weather would have allowed, you would have just head east over the Taurus Mountains and the Cilician, Cilician Gates and the pass through the Taurus Mountains that would take him to, Derb, to, his, to his hometown in, in Tarsus. He would come that way later in his later missionary journeys from Cilicia through those mountains. In any case, he didn't. He goes back into the city. Perhaps it was a needful choice given his physical state, but either way, he sets his course for more gospel work. He sets his course for more gospel work, even though he had encountered death, brothers and sisters. And years later, he references this event when writing to Timothy, and there are instructive words to Timothy and for us here. But you've carefully found, this is, many believe, his, his last letter. Very late in his life. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions. So he's talking to Timothy. Timothy, you've followed me. You've seen these things. You've followed me. Love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured. So here he's talking to Timothy about these. He's writing to Timothy about these exact events. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You've got it there in your notes. Maybe we can say that aloud together. All who desire to live godly in I'll, I'll wait till you got all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So Paul, when he goes back to strengthen the believers, he doesn't want them to think that there's some Christian path that you can put together to avoid persecution. You have to accept it. Going on with Paul, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So he's telling Timothy about what he's going to experience. What he's going to experience during that generation. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's the same kind of idea we see in Psalm 119. And the Psalms is that Paul knows that Timothy is going to face these same things. And he knows that the temptation is going to be to lay aside the Word to drift from the Word, to not take it up and use it, believe it, understand it, preach it, teach it, live it in every day and in every way. So what's the response to persecution that we see Paul giving to Timothy? One, we have to have the right mindset. We've mentioned it already. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
So if you are not suffering persecution in today's world, then it's likely one way to interpret that is that you are not living godly in Christ Jesus. Next, indefatigable faith. That's a fun word. Indefatigable faith. You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of. Because all of this persecution is meant, the devil's testing to see maybe this is that seed that's fallen on the bad ground. Maybe you are the seed that's going to give way under persecution. And you're going to discover who you are. All of us do in the midst of these things. Will you fall, fall away or will you, will you have the indefatigable faith that presses on, clings to Jesus and his word in your life? For your life as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother, as a young man, as a young lady, as a boy, as a girl, for your life. Next, be a follower of Christ, of Christian models. Don't follow the world. And this is a major theme from today's sermon because this world will shape us. Don't follow the world. Follow Christian models. And then fight with the sword. Know, believe, and preach the word and live the word in your life. These are the instructions that Paul gives to Timothy in the face of considering all the difficulties that are coming his way. What happens next? Paul and Barnabas preach and make disciples in Derbe. So he keeps moving ahead. The next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. So they go there, they preach the gospel, and they make many disciples. Who knows how many bruises he had? Who knows... I mean, they didn't have band-aids, right? So, like, well, how many bandages did he have wrapped around his body as he shows up? I want us to note Paul and Barnabas together committed to their mission. Think of these two men and the closeness and the love for Christ that they share together. And the very next day, they depart from Leicester and they make way for Derby. And it was quite a long journey to begin with within a day of being left for dead. We, we know from looking at the maps that Derby was 93 miles east of Lystra. 93 miles east of Lystra. Traveling on the main Roman road, that's the Via Sebasti. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. They would have passed through Dalasondos, Cotalesos, Pasala, Elystra, and Laranda, cities in which they may also have preached the gospel. And back in uh, verse 6 and 7, we were told when they fled from Iconium, they became aware of it and they fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lycaonia, Lycaonia and the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. So this is a 93-mile journey. <clears throat> so the Jews of Pisidian Antioch had gone about 100 miles to try to kill him, and he's going to go about 100 miles to keep preaching the gospel. So they preach the gospel, and they make many disciples in Derby. And what we need to see here is that he didn't try something new. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't, well, we need to change things up. No. The pattern is the same. While this man lives... He goes about preaching the gospel and making disciples. And it's worth noting that both of these things are happening. He's preaching the gospel and he's making disciples. His emphasis is not only on preaching unto new faith in Christ, but also then Paul leads the new believers to be disciples. That's learners of the way of Christ, those who continue in the way of Christ. And he, he wants to strengthen their souls so that they will persevere. So new faith equals new life inside and outside so that they live a new life. Commentary says those that are converted need to be confirmed. Those that are planted need to be rooted. Ministers' work is to establish saints as well as to awaken sinners. 
to retain is sometimes as difficult as to acquire. Oh, brothers and sisters, hear my weak and feeble pastor's heart speaking to you right now that I am always praying and striving by God's grace to be involved in not only preaching the gospel into new faith, but in trying to sustain through the word, through the preaching of God's word, through the means of grace, and strengthen your souls. Your souls. Those that were instructed in the truth must know the certainty of the things in which they've been instructed, and those that are resolved must be fixed in their resolution. So ministers work to establish saints as well as to awaken sinners. So he keeps on. And then they return to Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch. So it appears as though somehow he knew that he was supposed to go to Derby and back on, the, on this Roman road. And then back to Antioch. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Why? Strengthening the souls of the disciples. Exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting... They commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And again, I want us to note first what Paul did not do. There he is. He's made his, all, his way all the way to the end of the road. He did not continue eastward and cross the Taurus Mountains into his homeland city of Taurus or into the region from which he had come, the region where he was raised up. Now, this could have been a weather-related choice because you're not going to try to go over those mountains which come up to around 11,000 feet uh, during the wrong time of year. Um, But we do know that during his second and third missionary journeys, it's very likely he traveled westward from from Cilicia across the Taurus Mountains. And so during those two journeys, he started in Antioch and he kind of went up around the Mediterranean coast through Cilicia and then across the Taurus Mountains moving uh, westward. So why did Paul go back into close proximity with danger? Why did Paul do that? Taurus was about 160 miles from Derby across imposing mountains. So he didn't go that way, which might have been appealing to him if the weather was right. He goes back to where he knows that danger exists. And he does this, brothers and sisters, to strengthen the souls of the disciples. This is a pastor's heart. He's an apostle, but you see his pastor's heart, his love not only to see new converts, but his love to help strengthen those in the faith, to continue in the faith. He's not just an evangelist. I want us to see his pastor's heart. Christ in him causes him to strongly desire strong-souled followers of Jesus who can withstand the tribulations, persecutions, pressures, afflictions, and losses associated with walking with Christ as His ambassadors. And as God blesses us here at Cornerstone, and we look, and the Lord raises up and grants to us future pastors, elders in our church, this must be a very, very high priority, perhaps the highest priority in that man's life, is a deep care for the soul health of others and a calling to help them grow in Christ. So what does he do? He exhorts them to continue in the faith. So not only is he warning them about the afflictions that are going to come, 
because of persecution and tribulation, because of walking with Jesus. But he points them in the path of how they will deal with this. And it's simple. Continue in the faith. Continue in the faith. That's what Paul had been doing. He'd been continuing with the, surely, the countenance of Christ guiding him. The grace of God gripping his soul and what God had done for him. His devotion. So he wasn't just focused upon new converts, but rather upon souls going on to salvation. Going on to faithful love and service to Christ with their lives, brothers and sisters. Paul is not just interested in counting conversions. You know, I've seen it on the, the McDonald's sign, right? How many hamburgers have been served? There's some churches, I did see some church signs about how many souls have been saved. Paul is interested in every breath, every day, and if necessary, embracing death along the way. And only God's grace can keep us. As we go through these difficulties, only God's grace can keep us. True confirmation, the commentary says, as Matthew Henry, is confirmation of the soul. It is not binding the body by severe penalties on apostates, but, listen, binding the soul. The best ministers can do this only by pressing those things which are proper to bind the soul. And there's only one thing. It is the grace of God and nothing less that can effectually confirm the souls of the disciples and present their apostasy. Oh, are you resting in God's grace? Are you resting in His love for you and His kindness to you in Christ? And finding as you rest in Him His power, His strength, His wisdom, His spirit, His word being brought to you in your life, being transformed by His work, knowing His fatherly affection for you. Paul says we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And this is the summary statement. This is what Luke quotes to summarize Paul's focus as he was working to strengthen the souls of the new believers And this is not a health, wealth, and prosperity message, is it? This is not come to Jesus and not have any problems, is it? No, it is not. This is a promise that you will probably have more problems when you come to Jesus in a world that hates Him, but you will have more blessings than you will ever understand. All who love Christ and set their minds to follow Him in this world will be hated by this world. Note this phrase, brothers and sisters, many tribulations. You know, do do you ever go through hard times and you kind of catch your breath and then something else happens and you're like, ugh, is this ever going to end? Well, in some regards, when we see this phrase, many tribulations, the answer is no. No, the tribulations, the persecutions for those who walk in his ways, the troubles associated with following following him in a fallen world are not going to end. In fact, if you think about it, this world will hate us more and more, not less and less, as we become more and more like Christ. Sanctification will increase and thus intensify our troubles and our persecutions. Are you being made like Christ? Is that what sanctification is doing in your life? And do you end up, because of that, making choices that cause you to look different from the people around you? One of the places that you will find this uh, is how you raise your children. 
I can tell you that in my life, there's been few places where we have experienced more tribulations and troubles and persecutions than in when we began to reveal our faith in Christ through how we raised our children. The devil wants your children. <clears throat> but there's going to be a way through this. And the way through this is a greater thing than, than you can imagine. It is not worth comparing. It is not worth comparing. The joy and the bliss that is ours on the other side of this is not worth comparing to the troubles that we'll face in this life. The joy and the gladness are so much greater. The troubles are nothing compared to what awaits us both here before death and in glory after we die. All of you probably nod your head, yeah, yeah, when I die, it's going to be fine. But then when I say, hey, and you're going to taste of that in this life, you're going to be like, well, really? Not so much. No, you will. You will taste of this entering of the kingdom of God, joy and gladness, fruition in this life as well. Maybe not in all the ways that you desire and maybe in spots that you didn't expect. Commentary says, we shall not only get through it, but get through it, that's the tribulation, into the kingdom of God. And the joy and glory of the end will make abundant amends for all the difficulties and hardships we may meet with in the way. It is true, we must go by the cross. But it is as true that if we keep in the way and do not turn aside nor turn back, we shall go to the crown. And the believing prospect of this will make the tribulation easy and pleasant. We find him. We know him better when we go through tribulations in faith. And knowing him makes everything worthwhile. Knowing him better. Matthew Henry says this, young converts are apt to waver, and a little thing shocks them. Their old acquaintances beg they will not leave them. Those that they look upon to be wiser than themselves set before them the absurdity, indecency, and danger of a change. You see, Paul knew what these new believers were going to be facing. They were allured by the prospect of preferment to stick to the traditions of their fathers. They are frightened with the danger of swimming against the stream. All this tempts them to think of making a retreat. But the apostles come and tell them that this is the true grace of God wherein they stand. And therefore they must stand to it that there is no danger like that of losing their part in Christ. Did you hear that? There is no, da there is no danger like that of losing their part in Christ. That, that should be our greatest fear. No advantage like that of keeping their hold of Him. That should be our greatest motivation. That whatever their trials may be, they shall have strength from Christ to pass through them. And whatever their losses may be, they shall be abundantly recompensed. And this confirms the souls of the disciples. It fortifies their pious resolutions in the strength of Christ to adhere to Christ whatever it may cost them. So what are the difficulties that you face that are going to try to push you away from the gospel? 
But they not only strengthen the souls through their preaching, but they're strengthening the souls of the disciples by appointing elders in every church. And they prayed with fasting when they did this. Note the importance of prayer and fasting at times of ordaining and installing elders of the church. And we will look at this more with future sermons, the concept of praying and fasting. They commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. This is really important. The churches with their members and their officers need not be concerned that Paul and Barnabas are leaving because Jesus, their Lord, remains with them. They have His Spirit and His Word, so they are equipped. And this is kind of the heart of every biblical installation service. When an elder has been ordained and then there's the service where all the people are together and the, the men from the presbytery are all there and it's like this wonderful experience commending them to Christ. That he will, he will be their shepherd and He will look after them. Briefly next, note the office of elder is filled by men from the local churches in a process that included both local church authority and authority from outside the local church. And we'll look more at this in later sermons as well. The qualifications commentary says as of such as were proposed or proposed themselves, whether the apostles or the people put the man up, were judged of by the apostles as most fit to judge, and they, having devoted themselves, were solemnly set apart to the work of the ministry and bound to it. These elders were ordained to them, to the disciples, to their service, for their good. Those that are in the faith have need to be built up in it and have need of the elders' help therein. The pastors and teachers who are to edify the body of Christ. This is the purpose of pastors and teachers. To edify and build up the body of Christ. There are different views on all of this and how all of it fits together as Presbyterians. We believe that there's a presbytery that has some role in the ordaining and then there's the local church, the local congregation that has some role and that they work together to see to the identification, training, ordination, and installation of elders. What happens next? They make, they make way for Antioch. It's time to go back and tell them what's happened. They're still preaching along the way. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. There's no mention that they had preached the gospel in Perga, as I said already, and they're still preaching all along the way. It's no surprise. It's like a broken record. That's what they do. They preach as they go. There's no mention of Italia when they had arrived in Asia Minor from Cyprus. Not sure why, uh, but at this point they sail from Italia. Uh, they, so they leave from Italia, but they arrived at Perga, it looks like. They don't go back to Cyprus. That's worth notice. Perhaps it was getting later into fall and the safe sailing season was growing short. We'll see later in Acts 27. It says this, because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also. If by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. So there was a time of year where you just didn't travel. Okay, and so perhaps that's why they didn't go back through Cyprus because surely there were disciples that needed to be strengthened there as well. And then they arrive in Antioch and it says this, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Paul and Barnabas saw their work as a shared work with the church at Antioch. That church had prayed and had fasted with them when the Lord called them to the work and had prayed and fasted when they sent them out. And they, commended, they were commended to the grace of God for the work. It's worth noticing here as we pass by this text that God's grace leads to work. Young men, especially hear this. Young ladies too, God's grace doesn't lead to laziness. 
Resting in the Lord doesn't mean staying on the couch. Resting in the Lord often is going to make you one of the busiest people around doing the work of God's kingdom. And they've completed their work now. Somehow they know this. Paul and Barnabas know that it's mission, it's mission completed time. And they're back at Antioch and they update and they nurture God's people. It says when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. This is a good report. Like imagine sending out missionaries and having them come back and give you this report of God doing so many wonderful conversions and God performing miracles as they went forth and getting stoned almost to death and yet being brought home safely. So they gathered the church together. This was corporate encouragement, rejoicing together in the good report of God's work. The focus here is God opening the door of faith to the Gentiles. That's the big story of the whole first missionary journey. And it's very important that we keep that in mind as we go forward into the big controversy that hits the southern Galatian churches that we're going to talk about as we get into Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council. Thus the gospel was spread and it shone more and more and none was able to shut this door which God had opened. Not all the powers of hell and earth. I'm sure they talked about it, but the focus was not on the persecution and the tribulations that they had experienced when they got back to Antioch. The focus was on encouraging them in God's work of opening the door to the Gentiles. So even though when he went back through the churches, his focus was in encouraging them and helping them be settled and deal with persecution properly by the time he got back to Antioch, that was no longer the focus. So there for a long time, encouraging and being encouraged. They've been through a lot. Remember, this is from 47 to 49 AD. This was a long journey, sailing, walking, being hated, being resisted, being nearly killed, being threatened. And now they're home. And there's no persecution at Antioch. So they're back in the sweetness of Christian fellowship and growth together in Christ. So you can see it's come full circle for this group. And there they abode a long time with the disciples, longer than perhaps at first they intended, not because they feared their enemies, but because they loved their friends and they were loath to part from them. So brothers and sisters, I hope that today's message has been used of the Lord to help you have a firmer mindset to understand tribulation and persecution. And that you will consider, who am I? Have you been through such a persecution? Have you been through such opposition because of the gospel? You think through your life and you've been through experiences where people press against you and resist what you are doing, whether it's personally, maybe it's in your married life, maybe it's in how you're raising your children. Maybe this is cultural and not necessarily people you know well. Maybe this is family members who have come against you. How have you responded to that? What have you learned about your own soul and your own faith through that process? Do you understand that it must occur? Do you understand that God will use it for good? Do you understand that you can rejoice and be glad and know that you are blessed when God brings this in your life and that He has appointed it? And that you are not alone when you go through this. He's been there. He's walked this road. And there's a great reward 
awaiting those who go through persecution in His name. Especially after we die, but even, even as we go through it in knowing Him better. When you are mistreated by those who hate you because you identify with Christ, do you rejoice? Do you give thanks? Do you consider the reward that is yours? Do you bless them? Do you look for ways to do good to them? Do you pray for them? Do you love them? What is the state of your heart towards your neighbors, that is, the, hu- the global human neighborhood, who hate you and mistreat you because you identify with Christ? What is your heart towards them? And will you love them even as they continue to hate you because you identify with Christ? Oh, this is sorely needed in our world today. Polarizing forces that are in place today want us to argue and fight over every single thing there is instead of being the peacemakers that God calls us to be. That we may be polarizing in one way and one way only in identifying with Christ, in loving Jesus. And if there's ever any hatred that comes our way, may that be the only reason that it is so. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we look to You. Lord, we acknowledge that we need to have our souls strengthened. Oh God, we acknowledge that we need a a brighter sense of Your presence and a a deeper drink from the fountains of Your glory and Your beauty. Lord, we need to walk more closely with You. We need to have our souls strengthened. Lord, we need to be exhorted to continue in the faith and looking to Christ and rejoicing in Your grace towards us. Oh Father, we lift up to You our weak souls, our weak faith, and we ask that You would grant to us faith that is strengthened, we would continue in faith, pressing through in Your presence the right mindset, the right response to persecutions and tribulations that will come as we walk in faithfulness to You all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name. Well, it's time to stand.